Okay, good morning, everybody. It has been an eventful morning, indeed, at least in my house, it has. So, well, let me just put it this way. If, if you haven't caught vomit in your hands this morning, you haven't had the morning I've had, all right? So, because I think you should all know, all right? That's just it's the kind of morning I'm having. So, we are moving right along in the larger catechism. Um, so, if you remember the last two weeks, we examined uh, the miracle of the virgin birth, the hypostatic union, um, and the importance of this doctrine is going to come to light uh, as we examine our question this morning. Uh, today we're on question 38, and we're looking at why man's mediator has to be God. And then, of course, the next question, question 39, is going to be why the mediator has to be man. question after that is going to be why the mediator has to be both God and man in one person. So these three questions are really going to uh, go together. And if you haven't noticed by now, catechism is very systematic in its approach in teaching these truths, right? One idea naturally builds upon the next. So let me open us up in prayer. <clears throat> Our good and gracious Father, we thank you for uh, this truth that we find in Scripture. We thank you that it is uh, indeed so systematically preserved for us uh, in our confession. And we thank you that we um, can pray uh, in the name of our great mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is both God and man, and that we can uh, learn about these great truths this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's, uh, I'll read the question and let's read the answer together. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Okay, now I really like this question because um, they, they, the divines really put a lot of meat in the sandwich here, if you will. You know, what I, what I mean is, is, you know, if someone asks you, uh, why did Jesus have to be both God and man? You know, what does is, what is he do in his divine nature versus his human nature? I'm, I'm very confident um, any of you could, could answer those questions. Uh, but this... This question and, and future questions really um, give you a little more substance, a little more meat. So, like all good long catechism questions, uh, we're going to take this uh, a piece at a time. We're going to let our semicolons kind of direct our path here. Uh, and if you notice, there are three semicolons in this answer, each kind of partitioning a different idea. And these will be our three main headers for this answer. So, let's start with our first one there. Now, I want to I reread this section, this first part, uh, because I have a feeling... Some of you are going to misunderstand what the divines are talking about here in this first part. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. Okay, so let me ask you a question here. Is the human nature here referring to Christ's human nature or our human nature? Um, because how you answer that is going to influence how you understand this question. So let's, let's look at each possibility here real quick. If the human nature referred to us, it would kind of go something like this, right? It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he, Jesus, right, might sustain and keep our nature, our human nature, from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. So does that make sense? 
Does that kind of jive with our theology? Our mediator had to be God to keep our human nature from sinking under the wrath of God and the power of death. Well, I mean, sort of, kind of. I wouldn't really say it that way. I mean, it kind of sounds like the gospel, right? Uh, God became man that we might be saved from the wrath of God and the, the sting of death, right? I mean, there's some scripture there. But what about the other side of that? What about the other option here? What if the human nature here referred to Christ's human nature? We would understand the answer more like this. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he, Jesus, might sustain and keep his human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. And that is, in fact, the right answer. Okay? That is what the divines are trying to relay. Well, how, how do you know that? How do I know that? Well, look at our scripture proofs, right? There's four. I'm only going to read two of them here. First one comes from Acts 2, uh, verses 24 and 25. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. So this is a quote from Psalm 16 as a text pointing to the resurrection. And Peter later reasons that because David died, right, this psalm must have been speaking about one of his descendants. And Jesus is the only one who conquered death. In fact, our text says it wasn't even possible for him to be held by it. Why? Well, because he was sinless, right? He didn't do anything wrong. Our second text comes from uh, Romans 4.25. It says, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So focus on that, that first part. How was he delivered up for our trespasses? Now, we all know that Christ was, was beaten, humiliated, crucified, right, for us. But because of our sin, Christ had to endure the full wrath of God. What the Catechism makes clear is that in his divine nature, it was required. That divine nature was required in order that Christ's human nature could actually withstand for a time the wrath of God. Or really, like how the Catechism says it, that he might not sink under the infinite wrath of God. God's wrath poured out towards sin is is all-consuming. It will drown a person. And it's infinite. There is no expiration date on the punishment due sin. The divine nature ensured Christ's human nature did not plunge into such an all-consuming wrath. So what I want you to notice here in this first section is how the divine nature is necessary because it sustains Christ's human nature. Okay, And it does it, like the Catechism says, in two principal ways, from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and being caught under the power of death. Okay, Now our second major section focuses on efficacy. Okay, it's required that our mediator be God in order that all of Christ's work have merit, in order that it be efficacious. Okay, now why is that the case? Because the role of the mediator between God and man must be perfect. If you remember, as we studied covenant theology, we looked at a lot of different mediators, right? But every single one of them was imperfect in one way or another. They all fell short. Only God himself can function as the perfect mediator for his people. Because only God is without sin. 
And our answer focuses on three ways this perfect mediation occurs. In Jesus' suffering, his obedience, and his intercession. Now, I, I, don't really, I don't think we really need to examine each of these individually in detail. I just want to make a couple of, of quick points here. Uh, the first being that at a minimum, at a minimum, all three of these must be present for salvation to be possible. Okay? If you take any one of these three out of the equation, Christ saves no one. Okay? Now, now some people might think, okay, well, well, well but, but okay, if he, what if he obeyed perfectly and he died on the cross for my sins? Isn't, isn't that enough? No. Because what you're assuming at that point is that Jesus lived and he died. Where's the resurrection in that equation? Okay? You need a mediator who perfectly obeyed in life, suffered in death, and after rising from the dead, continuously makes intercession for his people. And we'll talk a bit more about that, that idea of continuously making uh, intercession in his mediatorial role as, uh, as, a, as a priest later on. <clears throat> Secondly, these, these three roles mark the purpose for Christ's coming. Now, let me preface that statement by, by saying that if you go through and you read your Bible, right? There are a lot of specific reasons that Jesus mentions for his arrival, right? He came to testify to the truth. He came to preach. He came to destroy the works of the devil, right? I mean, that, that could go on. <clears throat> but again, at a, at a foundational level, 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Okay, and how did he do that? Well, these three things, right? He perfectly obeyed the law. And, and this relates to both his passive um, or I'm sorry, he perfectly obeyed, I should say, and this relates to both his passive and his active obedience. Um, I think most of us know this. I'm just going to go over it real quick. Active obedience, meaning how Christ kept the law perfectly. Okay, Jesus says in John 8:29, "I always do the things that were pleasing to Him." Him referring to His Father. Okay, Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Passive obedience, meaning how He submitted Himself to the wrath of God in the cruel treatment of the cross. Uh, Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Secondly, he suffered. Right? Uh, Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul says it is necessary for Christ to suffer. In other words, this is why he came. He had to do this. And, by the way, just as a little side note here, right? Notice when Paul does apologetics here in Athens, right? When he makes his defense for the faith, he argues from what? The Scriptures. Wait, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Well, then take it up with Paul, because that's what he does. That's how he does his apologetics. Guys, if you're not using your Bible in apologetics, then you're doing it wrong. That's all I must say about that. Okay, lastly, right, he intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So after his resurrection, Christ ascends on high to sit in his seat of victory and glory at the right hand of the Father. And there he lives eternally to make intercession for us. So we see that 
part of Christ's life, in fact, his eternal life, right, is to, to continuously, continuously intercede for his people. And again, we're, we're going to talk about that in a lot more detail when we look at Christ's role as a priest. And of course, all this work is in conjunction with, with Christ's main goal, right, that God would be glorified and his name would be hallowed. God's ultimate purpose in, uh, in his life is, is not really redemption as such, but rather the praise of his glorious name through redemption. Okay, but again, our mediator must be God in order that these three duties, suffering, obedience, and intercession, are all perfectly executed and adequately afforded the highest level of worth and efficacy. Okay. Now our last major section here, uh, at the end of the answer, may just kind of look like a big random list, but I assure you it's not. There's a, there's a common theme here. The focus is to draw your attention to the fact that God is the mediator because it saves his people. It benefits his people. Okay? It can't be any other way. Let's look at these. And, and as we're doing so, keep in the back of your mind, right? If God were not the mediator, could any of these things be possible? Could a mere man do these things? Right? I'll give you a hint. The, the answer is no. Right? <clears throat> First, satisfy God's justice. Now, this is a big one. The theme of God's justice is a very prevalent theme in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 3. Romans 3. Most of us know this text very well. Starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Man, that's one of the best passages from one of the best books in Scripture. Right there. And Paul lays out such an important argument in those verses. No one can claim the righteousness of God based on their own merit. Why? Because everyone is a sinner and falls short of God's righteous and perfect standards. Right? Well, then how is a person justified? How is a person declared not guilty but rather righteous by the divine judge. Well, it's given to them by his grace, right? by his unmerited favor as a gift. He says in verse 24, well, wouldn't that make God unjust? Wouldn't he be an unjust judge if he just started arbitrarily, arbitrarily handing out not guilty verdicts? Yeah, he would. Unless someone took, his, took the punishment for you. Right? And that's why we receive by faith, verses 24 and 25 say, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, two things I want to draw out here. That word um, redemption and this idea of blood harkens back to the Old Testament exodus. We talked about this in great detail, right? It was through the blood of the Passover lamb that God liberated or redeemed Israel from Egypt. The exodus, as we all know, right, pointed forward to the greater redemption that Jesus won for his people through his blood. 
through His death on the cross and the shedding of His blood, we are forgiven of our sins and declared righteous. Now, secondly, Jesus' blood propitiated God's wrath so that the Lord's holiness was not compromised in forgiving sinners. And this answers how God is not an un- unjust judge, right? Now, that word propitiation, let's talk about that real quick because I think a lot of people sometimes get tripped up on that. Very simply, it means satisfied. Okay? <clears throat> Jesus' blood propitiated or satisfied God's wrath. And this also gets in an important doctrine called double imputation, right? I'm sure most of you know this. It's the teaching that not only do we give Christ our sins, but he also gives us his righteousness. And it's because it's not that he just takes away our sins, right? That just wipes out the debt. That just brings us to zero. But that's not enough. You need more, right? Just, go, just getting to zero doesn't get you into heaven, what you need is to go from zero to a hundred. You need Christ's righteousness credited to your account. But before we can receive this righteousness, before sins could be forgiven, God's righteous anger towards sin needed to be appeased. <clears throat> now, the text says that in his divine forbearance, God passed over former sins. Well, what does that mean? Passing over sins, that doesn't really sound particularly just. Right? How could the most holy God of the universe tolerate human sin? Shouldn't he be inflicting punishment, full punishment, just instantly? Well, the answer is that God looked at the cross, where the divine mediator would render full and perfect payment for the guilt of sin. In other words, God's people in the Old Testament are saved in Christ, and those who were not of the elect, right, and truly saved, they are in hell. Now, Paul concludes this argument on justice with, uh, I think, it's just an absolute crescendo. It's beautiful, okay? Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, right, God has demonstrated his righteousness, his, his, his holiness, his justice at the present time, at a specific moment in redemptive history and salvific history so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Man, what a line. In the cross of Christ, God has shown himself to be just. He is utterly holy so that the penalty demanded by the law is not removed. It's paid for by full in Christ, but in the cross he is also the justifier. He provides the means of justification and declares people to be right and in a good standing with God. At the cross, God's justice and his love are perfectly met in Christ. Only having God as our mediator could something like that be accomplished. Secondly, the divines say that it procures his favor. So this is saying that through the divine mediator in Jesus, Christ is able to secure the favor of God. Well, wait, I thought, I thought the section you, I said was talking about God's people. Well, that's still true. Okay? This one is a both and. The divines list two proof texts for this. Let's take a look at the first one. Matthew three seventeen. 
Matthew 3.17 says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, this is, you know, most of us know this is Jesus' baptism, right? Clearly, this is God the Father speaking to His perfect Son, right? Imparting His divine pleasure, right? This has nothing to do about our divine pleasure, right? Directed toward us. But that's not to say that the Father's pleasure toward His Son is not important. In fact, it's very important. Here we have a pronouncement of the Messianic King from God the Father. And the Father says He is well pleased to give Him the most important mission of all time. To bring salvation to the nations. And that's exactly what Christ does. We see in our second proof text, shedding a little bit more light for us, right? Our predestination and our adoption, according to Ephesians 1.6, is to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So if you remember earlier, I said the primary purpose of Christ and His coming was not necessarily redemption. Rather, it was the praise of His name through redemption. Well, that's our proof text for that. We are adopted and predestined in order that we might praise Him. The last part of verse 6 says, God has blessed us in the Beloved. And that's how this procurement of divine blessing applies to us. Okay? So for those who are in Christ, we receive all the same benefits and inheritance as the Son. Right? We are adopted sons of God and are blessed in Christ. And the Father, as we just read in Matthew, is pleased with His Son. Right? So through our divine mediator, we too receive the Lord's favor. And I know you guys are probably sitting there thinking, yeah, I got it, cool, move on. But don't gloss over that too quickly. Okay. I think sometimes we tend to be a little bit hard on ourselves, and I don't, I in no way want to um, make light of our sin. Um, but we see our sin, and maybe sometimes we begin to question God's love. We have doubts, our assurance drops. Um, as a result, maybe we stop praying, we get out of the Word easily, but don't ever forget that as a child of God, as a son of God, and yes, you want to be a son of God, because it was the firstborn son who received the inheritance, okay, but as a son of God, the father looks at you and sees his own son, with whom he is well pleased, do not doubt the father's love for you, do not doubt his pleasure in you because of his son. So keep praying, keep reading, keep repenting. Cast off your sin and keep God's word. Okay? Now, the third one, <clears throat> it says that we need a divine mediator in order that God could purchase a peculiar people. Now, I am willing to entertain arguments that when the divine say a peculiar people here, that they actually mean weird. Uh, because I'm not going to lie, I have talked to some of y'all, and God definitely saved some weird, peculiar people. Okay? I'm just saying, I think an argument could be made. 
Okay. No. Of course, what they meant is that through Christ's work on the cross, God saved a specific people. Right now, actually, I want to talk about three things on this one. We're going to start kind of micro scale and then pan out. Okay. First, notice uh, that word purchased. Purchase. Okay. I don't know if many of you think about it in these terms, uh, but what happened on the cross was a divine transaction of sorts. Okay. 1 Corinthians 6.20, 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. 2 Peter 2.1, the master who bought them. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed or bought from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Dear Christian, you have been bought. You have been paid for. And what was the price? Well, it was the steepest price of all. It was the blood of the Son of God. And the rest of 1 Peter 1, it goes on to say that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the Lamb without blemish or spot. We often, and rightly so, we like to think of the cross in terms of our salvation. But we have been bought by God. He paid for us. And it cost Him His Son. And secondly, Notice that word peculiar. The divines were very careful about which words they used here, right? Now, all joking aside, doesn't mean weird, right? This teaches us that God saved a specific people, right? And this points us to the doctrine of election. <clears throat> now, I realize most of us believe this doctrine, love the truths and implications of this doctrine, so I don't want to spend too much time here. Let's go over it briefly. Let's turn uh, quickly to Ephesians 1. Uh, I'll read uh, verses 4 and 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as, uh, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, just hit a couple of main headers with this doctrine. Right? In eternity past, the Father chose a specific people for salvation. As a result, no people can claim credit for their salvation. Right? God's election is offered purely in love, in accordance with His divine will. Jesus says in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Some believe God chooses uh, these peculiar people by, you know, looking down the corridor of time. Right? This is pure poppycock, of course, for two reasons, right? If God had to look down the corridor of time, that would mean that there is some kind of information that is outside of God's um, knowledge. Therefore, he would not be omniscient, right? And if he did look down the corridor of time, all he would see would be dead, filthy sinners, right? Okay. Rather, God has elected some for salvation and passed over others. Those would be the reprobate, okay? Now, lastly, I want us to look at, uh, we're going to pan out a little bit, look at the forest, not the trees, okay? This whole statement, right? God purchased uh, a peculiar people. Okay, what does that teach us? This purchasing of a peculiar people. Well, I mean, that's the doctrine of limited atonement, is it not? Um, and again, I know all of us, most of us should at least believe this. Uh, you probably heard this called different things. Uh, vicarious atonement, definite atonement, whatever new fancy phrase somebody wants to call it these days. The teaching is the same. Okay? Uh, you know, here we learn that one of the requirements of the divine mediator is to save a specific group of people. Um, Several passages we can look at to prove this doctrine, but uh, let's turn to our proof text. 
Uh, Titus 2. Maybe this is one you've never seen before. But I think you can see limited atonement here in this one, which I'm always down for reading a new passage on a doctrine I've heard a thousand times. So, <clears throat> Titus 2, beginning in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So Paul is writing to who here, right? Titus. And we see that specifically in, in verse 4, right? He calls Titus my true child in a common faith. So when Paul says that Christ gave himself up for us, verse 14, who's he talking about, right? He's talking about believers, he's talking about Titus, those who share the common faith. Christ died for a specific number of people. He lays down his life for his sheep. He died for those whom the Father gave him. We are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Christ is purifying who in verse 14 there? A people, a specific people, not the whole world, right? He died for those who are his own possession, and that's us, the ones that were bought by Christ. Christ owns us, his, his weird, peculiar people, okay? I'm sure most of you have heard this a thousand times, but it, it bears repeating, and I, I, think it was, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said this, you know, if Christ died for the sins of the whole world, well, then that would include the sin of unbelief, right? And that would mean that no one would go to hell, which, of course, we all know is not true. <clears throat> so that would mean that Christ's blood wasn't powerful enough to save them. Some of his blood would have been shed in vain. Well, of course, that's not true, right? Rather, the truth is that Christ died for his people, for the elect. Again, this is just surface-level stuff. I don't want to dive too deep into these doctrines. Just want to hit the basics. Um, now, fourth up on our list here is that God must be our mediator because he gives us his spirit. Now, a couple things I want to mention here on this one. First, the spirit is given, right, or sent by both the Father and the Son. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So there's the Father giving the Spirit, right? But we also know that Jesus says in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So why is it important that we remember this, right? That the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Well, because it solidifies our Trinitarian theology, okay? Remember, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. And this helps affirm our language, as does Scripture, right? That the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, okay? This is our, our one God, three persons, okay? Now, here's the second thing. The Holy Spirit is nothing that we can receive apart from God. Now, this may seem pretty obvious to most of us, but let me, let me flesh this out a little bit, okay? The first part of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, right? Election, predestination, calling, regeneration, faith, okay? Focus on those last two for me for a minute, regeneration and then faith. Arminian theology flips those around, right? First, the person believes, and then they are regenerated, but let me ask you this. Can a person have faith before they have been regenerated? 
In other words, can a person have faith and repentance in God before or after the Spirit has done its work in them? It has to be before, right? Because we know that before God sends His Spirit to work in a person's heart, <clears throat> to turn it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36, a man is spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, hostile to God. Romans 8, a slave to sin. Romans 6, right? He must be drawn by the Father. We just read John 6. I mean, go on and on, right? Man cannot come to God on his own. The fact is that he doesn't want to because of his sinful nature. <clears throat> Rather, man is first regenerated by the Holy Spirit and then given the gift of saving faith. So, not only could sinful man not obtain the Spirit apart from God, we wouldn't even want to do it. It is the Spirit who opens our eyes to the beauty of the Lord, who takes our minds away from the things of flesh and death and puts them on things of life and peace. Now, lastly, I want to mention the implications of the fact that we're given the Spirit, because I think maybe too often we overlook the work and the role of the Spirit. Now, there are many glorious deeds and works of the Spirit. I'm only going to list a few of them here. Um, as we've already said, number one, I think chiefly, is to glorify the Father and the Son um, by applying Christ's saving work to the elect. Okay? Secondly, in connection with that, he convicts God's people of their sin and draws us to Christ. Uh, John 16, 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay? Um, so, again, don't want to go into those in detail. We've already really talked about those. Third, though, he empowers us to combat the temptation of sin. Uh, Galatians 5, 16, 7, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, does this mean we don't sin anymore? No. Of course we do. Right? It means we are no longer slaves to our sin. We are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to fight and combat our sin and the temptation when it arrives. And when we do succumb to it, we're reminded why Jesus had to go to the cross. And we repent of it. And we are no longer burdened by that guilt. And that leads me to my next point. He sanctifies us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So, some people believe this, don't know why. Can you be justified but not sanctified? No. <laughs> sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. That would be your shorter catechism definition of sanctification. We have been divinely elected to be saved, and this was to be marked by a journey of sanctification through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, does this mean you just get to kick back and relax and let the Spirit do all the work? No, absolutely not. If you listened to the confessional definition, the Spirit enables you to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Hey, you're still called to live holy and sinless lives. And this, of course, is in contrast to the life of the unbeliever who is marked by unrighteousness. Five, the Spirit's work, and He intercedes for our prayers. 
Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. <clears throat> See, the problem is we don't always know God's will when we pray. But guess what? God does. The Spirit does. And so when we are before the throne of grace, especially in weakness, as the text says, and in so much despair that we can sometimes not even get words out, when our minds are, are so cloudy that we don't know how to pray the right way anymore, that's okay. Why? Because the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. God intercedes on your behalf, Christian. You know, I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. When all you can get out in a prayer is, God, help me, that's enough. That's enough. Because look at the beautiful Trinitarian picture that we have here in our prayers. We are praying to God the Father, who is listening to your prayer through the intercession of His Son, our perfect mediator, right, in whose name you are praying. A prayer which has been righteously offered in accordance with the perfect will of the Holy Spirit, who is interceding on your prayer. Our prayers are Trinitarian. Lastly, the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, 13, 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the Holy Spirit seals us, right? Meaning He preserves us until we reach our inheritance, right? We have, we have been marked as God's children, right? You probably all heard the, the illustration, like, like the, the wax in the ring, right? Being stamped. We bear the royal seal of God. Our text also says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Um, again, many of you probably heard this illustration, but I think it's a good one. Um, how the Holy Spirit acts like, kind of like earnest money on a house, right? God has given us His Holy Spirit as a promise. He says, I'm, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit as proof that I will keep my end of the deal. I'll show up on closing day, on judgment day, and I, I will give you your inheritance your entrance into the kingdom. And if I don't, you get to keep the earnest money. The Holy Spirit. Right? So the only way that's going to happen <laughs> is if God goes back on His Word. Which, of course, God doesn't go back on His Word. Right? There's no way that's going to happen. <clears throat> I like what it says in, in 1 John 14. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Because he has given us his spirit. I think this is a nice text to round out this section. You know, our faith waxes and wanes, even at the best of times. And that makes people tend to question their salvation. Assurance comes into question. Our feelings get in the way. Sin gets in the way. Events of life get in the way. But when you, when you focus on those things, doubts will always come. They creep in. What you need to focus on 
is the fact that the Holy Spirit resides in you and the promise that comes with Him, the guarantee that comes with Him. You have been sealed by God. He has guaranteed you of your salvation and your inheritance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Travis, I, I, I get that. I've heard it. But how do, how do you know, though? How do I know? Because you have God's Spirit. Because it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> so stop worrying. God has already done all the work. Christ died for you. And you have the Spirit of God for those who believe. So trust your God. Don't trust yourself. Trust Him. He's done all the work. Now, our next major section and our answer is that God conquers all our enemies. This is why we must have a divine mediator. Now, I really like the proof text for this one. Uh, grab my Bible here. I'll flip to uh, Luke. Luke 1. Starting in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, yes, praise God for this one. I've got this neighbor who lets their dog bark for hours, and that man is an enemy to my sanity. Can't wait for God to conquer him. It's going to be great. No, that's not how this works. And that man is not your enemy, and if you think he is, please come talk to me afterward. Um, that's not, uh, not what the divines are talking about. Okay, um, It's really not even close. <clears throat> what we need to recognize is that God conquers all of his enemies, those who oppose him and his word. And these people are also our enemies, which consequently makes them God's enemies. Okay? A person is not your enemy because their dog barks. Okay? A person is your enemy. A person hates you because of your love for God and His Word. Jesus says in John 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We should not be surprised that unbelievers in this world hate us. It follows the same pattern seen in the world since Cain murdered Abel. Okay? These are our enemies, and this is why they are our enemies. And so they are God's enemies. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, And you will be hated by all for what? My name's sake. Rejection of God and His word is what has, throughout redemptive history, made someone an enemy of God, and therefore, his people's enemy. And so it is right to pray prayers 
like the saints of old. Psalm 143, verse 12. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. And when God conquers his enemies, our enemies, they will be conquered completely. Okay? It's not like you'll have two or three left over. No, it angers God. A holy and righteous anger when his people are afflicted and opposed by the wicked. And so God's destruction of his enemies are swift and perfect. Now, here's the other cool thing about this promise. It's covenantal. After Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, the Lord stops him and provides a ram, right? Afterward, he tells Abraham in verses 16 and 17, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Okay, so that language should sound very familiar to us, right? But listen, it goes on. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So this section is concentrating on a single descendant who will overcome his enemies and mediate blessing to the entire nations of the earth. And as we know from our study in covenant theology, right, Genesis as a whole and in particular the Abrahamic Covenant, right, specifically is interested in tracing a single unique line of offspring that will eventually bring forth a special king who will rule over the nations. This is why Paul can insist on one offspring in Galatians 3.16, who is Christ. This promise to Abraham to conquer his enemies is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The same Jesus Christ who is sitting at the Father's right hand as all his enemies are made as a footstool under his feet. Hebrews 10.13. Now, at last, we reach arguably the most important reason God is our mediator, and we're going we're gonna to end here. <clears throat> Bring them to everlasting salvation. God must be our mediator so that he might save us eternally. This is not a work that we could do on our own. Rather, we read in Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source, or some translations have author, which I like, uh, of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. So, this text usually prompts two big questions. What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Okay, Jesus acquired knowledge and experience by living as a human being. Okay? You can read that in Luke 2.40. 52, and he especially came to know firsthand what it cost to maintain obedience in the midst of suffering. Okay, and throughout life, with each temptation proving more and more difficult, right, he still obeyed his father. <clears throat> and so he learned obedience in the face of each temptation so that his human moral ability was strengthened. Here's the second question that always comes up. What does it mean that Jesus was being made perfect? What does that mean? As a child, Jesus didn't lack any godly character right, at any point in his life. Okay? But he was lacking in the full experience of having lived a perfect human life until he reached that point. Okay? Obeying his Father in every way and without sin. Okay? And it's this lifelong perfect obedience that provides the basis for the eternal salvation mentioned in our text. 
Okay? Or as Hebrew 9.11 says, this, this work and his work on the cross, he uh, secured an eternal redemption. Okay? And without God as our mediator, this redemption would, would really be lost to us. So, we're going to land the plane there. That wraps up question, what was that, 38? Yes, 38. Does anyone have any questions? Everyone's like, no, please stop talking. Pray and let us go. <laughs> One little thing aside. Uh, spent a good bit of my church going not understanding <clears throat> basically in the Armenian situation, I guess. Uh, fussing with I found, I chose, I this, I that, and the other thing in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, thankfully it was drawn to the Reformed Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Goes with the double negative. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Thank you. Any more questions, comments? All right. Let me pray first. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son um, in his divine nature to truly be our mediator, um, that you have comp- uh, accomplished all this great work for us and secured our salvation. Holy Spirit, please be with us today in our fellowship and our worship of you. And we pray for uh, our visiting pastor, uh, Corey Page, who will bring our word for us today. Please bless him in his uh, delivery and open our hearts to receive the word. We pray all this in Christ's name.